Welcome to Tim Stodds FM, where each week we discuss new ideas and tactics to help you succeed in business, relationships, and life. And now your host, Tim Stoddard. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Tim Stoddard. Welcome to the Tim Stodds Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. This week, I sat down with the talented Snigda Sir. Snigda is the founder and CEO of The Juggernaut, a Y Combinator-backed media company telling smart South Asian stories and news. The Juggernaut prides itself in telling stories with, quote, untold context. Snigna's resume is very, very impressive. She's worked at McKinsey New York in Bollywood. She's worked in media-focused venture capital, and she has worked in launch strategy for Hello Sunshine. She's also advised BuzzFeed and Quartz. In addition, Snigda graduated from Harvard Business School as a Baker Scholar with an MBA and magna cum laude from Yale College in Economics and South Asian Studies. She's fluent in Hindi, Bengali, and sometimes can slip into Mandarin. What Snigda is creating is very exciting, and I know her media company has a bright future. I loved speaking with her. I loved listening to her story and her journey and and listening to uh, her improvements as a leader and a CEO. And I know that she's going to do huge things with the juggernaut. Seriously, keep your eye on this company. I have a real feeling that this website and this company is about to blow up. So please help me welcome Snigda Sir. Snigda, thank you so much for joining me on my show. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. You run, you own, you founded The Juggernaut. The Juggernaut is a media publication that uh, speaks specifically to people with a South Asian descent for a South Asian audience. Uh, I have so many questions about this. Uh, When you and I met on uh, the little mastermind that we did with The Hustle, I immediately gravitated to it. I thought to myself like, wow, what a what a great market to go after. What a population of people that traditionally like don't get served the media that I think um, most people do. Lots I want to talk about, but before we even get started with it, I just want to know how you came up with this. Like why the juggernaut? How did you see an opening for this market and what inspired you to get started? Thanks so much, Tim, for asking that question. Um, there's so much to dive into. I think I'll start a little bit with who I was as a young kid. Nice. Um, as a young kid, I, I was an immigrant. So I, I, I came to America from India. I was born in this small village in a state that was newly formed. I, I don't think it was formed when I was born, but it's now known as Chhattisgarh. And it was born in this clinic near this town called Thamthari. And I came to America when I was first eight months old and then came back when I was three. And I grew up partly in the Bronx and partly in Queens. And one of the first things that I think the gifts that my parents gave me, we didn't have much growing up, was that they took me, and I remember still that day, and you know, you enrolled for, you know, first the Bronx Public Library card, and then the Queens Public Library card, and that card felt so official when you're a little kid, it felt like you were like part of something. And my mom would take me, I think, religiously almost every week, and I would get to take out whichever books I wanted, and whichever movies and DVDs I wanted, and it was such... I guess, such a gift. And I think growing up with all of that, which is reading a ton of novels, watching a lot of movies and having these parents, which, you know, they didn't really have much, but they gave me that love for reading and watching great, 
I hate this word. Some people in journalism hate this word, but I'll say it content. Um, that, you know, as I was growing up and I got, I guess, smarter, I started noticing so many things that my mom would tell me that wasn't reflected in what I was reading or watching or listening mm. to. And I was like, how is this possible? How is this? There's like completely different canon that I'm learning at home and a completely different canon that we're learning at school or in the general world. And at this point, I'm an avid reader. Like I also worked you know, for my high school paper, I was, I've, I've been a subscriber of The Economist since I was 14. And that's only because I used to be a part of my high school's like extemporaneous speaking team. And that's what you did. You subscribed to The Economist. And I read The New York Times, read The Wall Street Journal. I read all of these things. And I was like, how is this possible that my mom knows so much and my relatives know so much? And there's just so much going on that's not here in what I'm seeing. And a great example of this is even like the people who are celebrities in India or South Asia in general, like one of the biggest celebrities there is a guy named Shah Rukh Khan. The number of times he gets mentioned in the New York Times is probably very small compared to the number of times he gets mentioned in South Asian media, but also the number of times he gets mentioned among people of South Asian descent around the world. And when I thought about starting the juggernaut, by the way, you know, one small, not even correction, but one small addition to what you're saying is I always envisioned it to be a big tent. Like this is a big tent for anybody to come in and open the door. And if you're just curious about the culture, its history, its politics, whatever, come on in. It's not just for people of South Asian descent, though the majority tend to be, but we have had subscribers who are, we once had a Cambridge professor who studies Indian politics. He's not, he's not Indian. We've had subscribers who just lived in India for a year and were, became obsessed with the culture and they don't identify as South Asian descent either. So that's the second thing I wanted to add. So ultimately to answer your question more directly, you know, it was like the summer of 2014 I had spent two years at a consulting firm called McKinsey and I had thought to myself, well, you know, I now have some business experience. I have the content experience. I used to write for my school paper and I used to write for the Yale Daily News and I used to read and write and all that good stuff. And I was like, well, what is the media company that I could build that kind of solves this problem, which is not reflecting the world I know. And my first version of this was like a Netflix for Bollywood, which is like, let me just copy Netflix. And I, let me fill it with Bollywood titles. And I could quickly see what could go wrong with this. One, like, <laughs> I thought Netflix would be faster than it was. I'm like, Netflix is going to acquire the titles themselves. But I still did my due diligence. I called up like 10 VC friends of mine. And I was like, this is my idea. Would you fund it? And they were like, you're crazy, but we're going to give you our advice. Another lesson I learned is don't, don't go to your investor friends to ask if they'll fund an idea. They, that's not a good way to test your idea. Just go yeah. talk to the customers, by the way. Um, so I was like, okay, that's not going to work. Two years later, I was at a summer internship in LA and my boss ended up becoming the CEO of Hello Sunshine and working on with Reese Witherspoon on this amazing media company that Reese Witherspoon started. And it was that summer that I got to be immersed in different business models and thinking about different media companies. And I got introduced to another woman who was really excited about doing a targeted play for brown people. And so we started working together. And initially the idea was in many different forms, um, which was we need to just create something that's cool and hip and a brand for, for brown people, basically. And then, you know, as I went back to business school, basically people cooled down on the idea, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I called her up and I was like, I think I'm gonna do something different with this, but I like the target market. And so after I graduated from business school, I started a free weekly newsletter that was just analyzing what's happening in South Asia with my voice and tone. And I started sending it to my friends. And soon enough, they started sending it to their friends. And I didn't know more than half the people on the list. 
And that's kind of when I realized that, you know what, maybe we start with a free newsletter, but I always want to do more because the aggregating is not going to solve the problem of the fact that this coverage doesn't exist. Mm. And that's ultimately how the juggernaut, as we know, it started. I'm happy to go down to more questions, but I know that was a pretty long answer to a very simple question. I'm first generation in my family. Um, my father was the first American, and I think he was two when he came here. So I'm the first, like, full generation. My uncles uh, were all born in Scotland. and uh, That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, and it was the same the same experience I had growing up. My, my parents were really laid back, probably pretty liberal in not necessarily the political sense, but just in like the, they're just casual people, right? But the only rule that they ever made for me was about reading. It was like, Tim, you got to read 30 minutes a day. And I honestly, until this day, can't remember a single rule that my parents had for me. And as I'm 34 now, I thank my parents so much for implementing that really particular but stringent habit in my life because the habit of reading for me has just opened so many doors it's it's given me such like a really great I mean the benefits are are huge right they can go on and on about the benefits of reading and so to hear that that was like that being the catalyst to start this newsletter which ultimately led to the juggernaut like and then what was it that made you decide you know like there's a business here and I want to I want to try to capitalize on it yeah, there's so much of what you just said that I also want to react to. So let me yeah, take a moment it. to do that. Like one of the things that went through my head when you were talking about reading 30 minutes a day is so much what, I've, what I noticed also was like how you visualize something in your head isn't how like, the world depicts it. And mm -hmm. a very small example is, I don't know if you read the Harry Potter series, but there were, I think, only two like or two maximum Indian characters in the entire Harry Potter series. And he grows up in England and like basically the British area. And that's just kind of impossible when you really think about it, just because London has like so many South Asian people. And I was like, so that's number one, when you think about it as you grow up. But the second thing is the film depiction of those two Indian girls is that they're wearing like Indian clothes at the Hogwarts ball. And you're confused because I've like, why did they make that directorial choice? Because nobody else in that episode is wearing anything really that's related to their country of origin and and look like if that was their choice if that the actors were brought into that decision i would totally understand it but it made it feel as if they were being like specifically and visually othered and i was like this is so awkward like you know i was i felt awkward watching it but those are some moments i wanted to like highlight but in terms of what makes it a true business you know one thing i've learned through the hard way, and maybe this comes from, you know, coming from immigrant homes, is that you can really make a business work, any business, you can really make it work. You just have to figure out what the assumptions are and you have to figure out what things you're willing to relax. Businesses do not work if for some reason the assumptions you are really holding on to that are really driving the whole thesis are not working. But for the most part, if there's anything business school has taught me, like most and entrepreneurship and immigrant life, all of that is that most problems are solvable. Like if you're not profitable now, is there a path to profitability? If you're not, if you don't have great writers right now, how do you get great writers? What is the problem? Because that is what basically entrepreneurship really is, which is figuring out what the problem is and then figuring out how to solve it. And then after you've gone all through those cycles and you still haven't figured it out, then yes, there's an issue. So I will say that, 
for anyone starting a business, especially a business in media, if from day zero, you're like, I can't really see how this succeeds, you're, you've already set yourself up for failure. If you can have the, if you can kind of imbibe that mentality of, I'm going to figure this out, you're much kind of better off and set off for success. So I basically had to create my own metrics of success because nobody else was going to tell me this. And this was the first time something like this was being created, right? Which is a digital native brand for South Asians and non-South Asians like globally headquartered in the U.S. that's invested in high journalistic, journalistic standards. Like I basically wanted to be like a Brown or New York Times. I still do. And so, and by the way, that's just the beginning. We have far larger plans and a larger, grander vision, but that's the beginning. And when I sat down and thought about it, I was like, well, what do I need to succeed? So for the newsletter, I was looking at open rates. So our first open rates, I think our total open rates were above 80%. Our unique open rates were 70%. Obviously that doesn't hold as you scale to tens of thousands, which we've done, but when we were very early, we had really high open rates. And then I would talk to a lot of the customers. I'm like, what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? And I know some of you are my friends, so I want you to be especially brutal with me. And it's interesting, right? Friends can be great liars, but you can also push your friends to be, yeah. to be really real with you. And I, I, I would take them out for coffee and be like, tell me everything that's wrong. And one of them, like, honestly, I thank him so much. He, he's actually a very senior New York Times reporter. I don't know why he took my email. I met up with him in Bombay. He spent an hour and a half with me. And he looked at my early site for just the newsletter, not even our second product, which is like the New York Times. And he was like, Singa, your site looks like spam. Why would I sign up for this? And I was like, thank you so much for telling me that because yeah. nobody else had told me that. And he also had a different design aesthetic because he was older. And that was important because I wasn't just designing for millennials. By the way, our subscribers, they range from as young as 18 to as old as 65 plus. And so if someone like who's not used to the whole minimalist aesthetic design that we've all kind of adopted in America. If someone's not used to that, like, yeah, it did look like spam because it was so bare bones. There was like nothing. It was just like a sign up button. So I think that's really important as you start, which is figure out the metrics that are important to you, but also talk to a few industry experts. Like what does success look like? For me, it was engagement because it's a free product. Then when we were launching the Juggernaut subscription site, which we launched on February 15, 2019, we were looking at subscription rates, right? Because that's what really mattered to us, which is how many subscribers do we have and how fast are we acquiring new subscribers? What are the bottlenecks? And here, this goes back to, do we have a real business? Getting revenue is great because it actually shows people are willing to pay for something. And that's really hard for people to take on. I don't want to talk about, I, I was talking to another person about this. Like I am a huge supporter of VC backed media companies. Why? Because I want the pie to get bigger. I want people to understand that media companies are intrinsically venture capital backable. But I want to pause on one story, right? The story of Quibi. What's interesting about Quibi is that, you know, they chose a really long trial period. And that's good because they want people to get used to their product for as long as possible. But what that also does is it delays iteration because you don't know what's working for like three months. And so what I was, what we did is we did a seven day free trial when we started. And a lot of people were like, why are you doing that? You should do like a two month free trial. And something in me was like, you know what? I kind of want to get immediate feedback. And if it really sucks, we'll change our free trial period. This is, goes back to my idea about like, you can always test all of that. Mm -hmm. Well, let's start and make our iteration cycle as small as possible. And guess what? We sucked for the first six months. We were really bad at getting subscribers for the first six months of our life. We were so bad that, you know, I, I don't even know how to explain how bad this was. Like <laughs> we were so bad, like a week that we got 10 subscribers, we're like, oh my God, this is amazing. 
like we were really bad and that's okay. Like that's the other thing to all, all my founder friends, like, or people thinking about it. If you're bad at something, that's okay. If you can A, recognize you're bad at it and then B, understand like what you're going to do both long-term and short-term. We're often so hung up on the short-term. Like it's, it's hard, right? Sometimes you see your friends, you stand up and you're like, oh my God, everyone's raising a ton of money. But then you have to like look back at your own company, right? And so we were really bad at it. And I started thinking and talking to myself. I'm like, why are we so bad at this? And it was because we were following a B2B playbook. It was because we were saying, if you build it, they will come. That's all that, we'll, that we need to do. And we just switched that mode of thinking. We're like, you know what? We're gonna get really good at marketing. Not because marketing is the end all. By the way, marketing is actually a very, very interesting discipline, if anything. That's one of the, one of the number one takeaways I learned from business school. Marketing isn't just putting up an ad and writing great copy. Marketing is the strategy of distribution, which is how do you get people to go through that customer journey of being aware of your product, to trying your product, to considering your product, to you know, converting to your product, to staying with your product. And it's also, where are you distributing? What channels are you using? It's like a really complicated mix of things. And we, became, we started to get a marketing mindset. So how did we get a marketing mindset? I started talking to people who are good at marketing. I started asking one of my partner, who's a late stage VC, to start looking at our business metrics. I started hiring a person who could be my second in command when it came to marketing. I started advertising on Facebook and Instagram, even though I was told, don't do that. But guess what? We did really well on Facebook and Instagram. So, you know, it is really important for, if I were to say, how do you figure out it's a business that's going to work? Number one, understand the intrinsics of what you're doing. And number two, always understand what you can improve at and what you can't. And so at the end of the day, I knew like, you know, the big TLDR is a subscription media company is actually a really good business. Why? It's negative networking capital. What does that mean? It means that most of your subscribers are paying you upfront to access a service for a period of time, whether it's a one month subscription or a year long subscription. That means they're paying you cash ahead of time. So as you really grow, your customers are really fueling your growth, number one. Number two, an ad-based medium business is gonna be inherently competitive to the likes of Facebook and Google and maybe probably TikTok. Are you really gonna be better at them? So I think that's why, you know, understand that. Third, what's my unit economics? What's my margin? Well, the beauty of a digital product is your margin should be almost nearly, um, when you talk about incremental margin, I'm not talking about gross margin right now, it should be nearly 100%. To serve an additional customer should cost you basically zero, basically your server costs, because you already have all the content, you already have everything set up. Your gross margin, by the way, which is, okay, after I've earned this revenue, how much of it may paying for just the cost of building this thing? should be something you can look up by looking at comparables. I looked up the New York Times 10K and I was like, you know what? My future state gross margin is gonna be 75%. That's really good. And so like, think about it that way. And so when I found out those kind of things and I was like, this is a pretty sound business if I can get it right, you can go into business because you can fix everything yourself. At Copyblogger, we, we phrase it as the killer and the poet, right? The poet is the creative writer, is the person that is, is the creative content creator that whether that's video or the written word or whether it's images right you need some kind of art you need a you need the poet in there and then the killer is the high level marketer and in 2020 considering the fact that you have so many ways to automate you have so many ways to apply to apply leverage and scale because um, it used to be that like if i want to talk to 100 people i need to sit in a room with 100 people and i need to tell them all 
But now with the tools that we have with digital media, the, you know, one tweet can reach potentially like tens of millions of people. And so every, every time I talk to people that are creating these independent media brands, whether it's about business or whether it's about um, South Asia or whether it's about, you know, I had pomp on the other day about Bitcoin or whether it's about, I mean, my first media brand was about sobriety because I'm like really into addiction advocacy, you know? So like no matter what your industry, this whole idea of a killer mixed with a poet in 2020, is just happens over and over and over again. And I think all those things that you're talking about is a great representation about how like a small team of people can encapsulate an idea, create a very lean and very, very like highly profitable business because there's nothing, there's no anchor that you're pulling. You're not paying rent. You don't have like a huge HR department. I am always so excited to see all these little independent media entities that pop up that are creating great creative work that makes me think, but is also making money. Because in me, from, from, from my view, the perfect business does three things. It's something that you love to do. It's something that helps other people. And it's something that makes money. And that's exactly what you're doing. And like, I think that's really fucking rad. <laughs> I love that you talked about that Venn diagram. I talk about that Venn diagram all the time because cool. it's something they would tell us at business school. Like you got to find something you love, something that, what would they say? Something that uh, will earn you money. And then something that, sorry, something that other people will pay for. And yeah, you did it way better, but I love that. I love that so much. And I love the killer and the poet analogy. I'm going to use that and I'm, I'll credit you, Tim, but like, I love that idea, which is you got to have a great product and you got to let people know about it and make it really easy for them to use it basically. I think the other thing I, I, I am feeling though during this time is that one thing I'm seeing in the writing world, because I get to talk to and work with such amazing freelance journalists, is that there's sometimes anxiety. And I, one thing I will say is that not everyone has to become a killer and poet if they don't want to be. I will put that message out there. I think I, agree. I, I love seeing the rise of Substack and I love seeing the rise of, like I said, I'm always going to be for BC-backed media platforms or media companies. But I've also been seeing a lot of anxiety where some writers have confided in me, like if I don't have a Substack or if I'm not making a lot of money or if I don't have a lot of independent subscribers, does that mean I haven't made it? And I, I don't think that's what it really means. I think that every person is wired differently. Mm -hmm. And sometimes always having to be the killer or, you know, is exhausting. It is like, you have to figure out like your marketing angle. You have to like always be tweeting, which has become its own toxic culture by its own, you know, like tw I Twitter. Had to stop. Right. And so, you know, I, I kind of, I get it. I really do. And I think that like, I'm always a champ, like I, I'll be a champion. Like if you want to start something, go for it. But also I want to put that message out there. We don't all, if you don't want to start something, that's also okay. Like that is also okay. And that's why you can lean in to, that's why media companies existed, right? You can lean into certain brands or certain things and help that and let them do the dirty work of amplifying your work. If that's what you want to do. Like that's totally a valid option. And I feel like some people are, feel guilty these days if they're not jumping on that bandwagon and doing everything for themselves, just to, just because it is an option out there, but that doesn't mean you want to do that. No, I agree. Just the whole phrase of like entrepreneur has kind of been labeled where it's like, oh, but I kind of just want to go to work every day. 
And it's like, well, then you should totally do that because yeah. ignore everybody on Twitter making it seem like they're making a million dollars overnight while they're sitting on their couch because it's fucking bullshit. And two, like, if you don't want to do it, then don't do it. So I, I totally agree. I mean, uh, let's be very honest here. Like I, I did the math, like I totally would have made more guaranteed money if I wasn't in quote unquote entrepreneurship. And I think most founders, I'm not going to speak for all of them, many founders I know are really not doing it for the money. Though obviously the money seems really sexy if there is a successful exit. But we have to remember most companies go to the graveyard <laughs> in this kind of very high risk world or they have like a modest exit and that's okay. I love having a little bit more of the high level business marketing talks, but I also want to learn a bit more about the philosophy behind the tone that you use. There's not like some kind of political agenda. It's really just like these are stories that we want to tell for people that want to listen. And I want to know, was that like a deliberate decision that you made? Or was that just a natural byproduct of, of writing the stuff that you want to write? That's a really great question. I, one thing I will say I did not expect going into this was how difficult it was to settle on our tone and our style. Yeah. It, it actually looks far easier than it is because when you're first starting something, you're always trying to be a derivative. Like I want a little bit of that and a little bit of that. And then you finally become your own. And one of my mentors, she's amazing. Her name is Sonal Chokshi. She, she's the editor in chief of basically A16Z. She told me most great companies, most great editorial teams have two words that really describe the tone of what they're building. And it took, it didn't take, actually, this came very easy to me. The two words for the juggernaut is untold context. We want our readers and um, consumers, we are going to be launching podcasts next year. Very exciting. So Ooh. not just readers. We want our readers and consumers to walk away feeling smarter, feeling that they scratched that little bit of an itch they had because they were curious, but also learn something that they didn't learn before. By virtue of us being a subscription product, it raises the stakes, right? We can't just do another article, right? I view news as two kind of forms or information as two different forms. There's what I call utilitarian or commoditized. And there's no wrong, there's nothing wrong with this. This is stuff like breaking news on Fox News or breaking news on the New York Times or breaking news Buzzfeed. on Associated Press. Buzzfeed. This is the stuff that we all can read for free almost in every single platform, right? And then there's a stuff that I call targeted media, unique media, identity media, whatever you want to call it. These are those like, it's like the cat lady article or the cat person article in the New Yorker. You only find it in one place. It's like Game of Thrones, right? You only find it in one place and it's like, you will pay money, good money for it because it makes you, you know, you won't find it anywhere else. And so we're aiming for that. And to aim for that, we want to tell exactly like what you said it really well. We want to tell the stories that we wanted to tell and we want people to feel excited, like some form of emotion after it. I want to talk about a specific story to give this detail. This past week on Monday, uh, one of our uh, staff writers, Michaela Stonecross, she published an article, she wrote an article about the death of this Bollywood actor named Sushant Singh Rajput. Um, many people believe it was suicide, but in the media of India, it's become some sort of political circus where they're saying actually he wasn't, he didn't die by suicide, he died by murder or somebody killed him and it's actually his girlfriend. And it's become like a whole political witch hunt based on party lines. And we wrote this story and so many of our readers, they were commenting on our Instagram posts, were like, thank you so much for writing this. I've been wondering where I can go to this one place and really read about this thoroughly because we presented both sides, by the way, but we also pointed out some of the loopholes. Because in many parts of 
the media, you can't trust it anymore, number one. And number two, um, it's actually really hard to have balance and context because sometimes people assume a lot. And so I think in that regard, that's, that's how we pull it off. We're like, how do we add that extra thing that nobody else is saying? How, do, how, how can we have the courage to say what nobody else is saying? And how can we push the conversation forward? And I, I'm glad you enjoy reading it because so I just got a really great message from, I love getting these messages from subscribers. They're like, I'm so constantly surprised how much stuff I found, find out almost every single day. And I love those like today I learned moments. I love that. Well, I think it's fascinating. And I suppose this next question needs a little bit of context. And I, I kind of need you to, to guide me through this a little bit because you're going to know the culture much better than I. In India, there's also what, like a hundred something languages that are spoken. There's an entire secular um, mainstream culture that if you live there is all you hear about. But if you're over here, we hardly even know that it's happening. And like, sometimes I think about that and it's so crazy to me thinking, considering the fact that the culture within itself has immigrated all over the world, continues to be like really successful and a big part of, um, of growing economies in countries that they have immigrated into. So what I'm saying, and like I said, please correct me if I'm wrong or, or please guide me in any way. I, I think it's so interesting that a culture and a population of people that is so important in like the history of our planet as humanity, as a species, why is it that it still stays so kind of secular to that one part of the world, considering the fact that the culture within itself has expanded worldwide? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I'll unpack different parts of that. Yeah, please do. Because so, I was also kind of clutching at straws there. <laughs> so the first thing I want to talk about a little bit is, you know, we do call ourselves a South Asian publication. Why do we do that? One of the reasons we do that, by the way, I was a South Asian studies major in undergrad, so I can be sometimes academic at times. So please cut in if some of this seems ri ridiculous. But one of the reasons we call ourselves South Asian is because when you look at the lines made in the sand or drawn, the borders drawn in that region right now, many of them were created by the British, right? So we include coverage on Pakistan and Sri Lanka and the Maldives and Afghanistan and Bhutan and actually Myanmar and Nepal and you know Bangladesh and including India. Why? Because you know what? Those regions that we consider separate countries today all used to trade with each other in a very closed loop um, you know, my grandparents, my grandma and granddad, they were living in Yangon, which is Rangoon, or they called it Rangoon, Yangon in Myanmar. And my dad's siblings were all born there, but were technically Indian. We were technically from the ancestral land of what is now Bangladesh, but because of partition, my parents had to leave. They were the wrong religion. They moved into what is now India. So when people ask me, where am I from? It's a very complicated question. You know, even when, I, you know, it's like a very interesting thing. So that's the first thing I want to set, set out is that this entire region, we do aspire to cover all of it. We obviously possibly can't based by what you just said, you can't. That's why our work ahead is so rich and so exciting. There's so much we can do. That's the first part. The second part is history, obviously. So there was, most people don't know, but at, for a long period of time, I think until the 1700s, end of 1700s, India and China, or what we, what we, India, what, what I'm calling India, that's why I said I started with South Asia, was basically that entire region, right? There was no words for Pakistan and Bangladesh back then. So I'm going to call it India, but we all know it was the entire South Asian region. India and China together had 50, owned 50% 50 of the world GDP, 50%, 25% India, 25% China. Do you know how much like Europe total had at that time? No idea. It was like something close to like 
I think England was like 0.25%. I think Europe was 2.5%, like very tiny, very tiny. And so the civilizations that were really thriving at that time were those two civilizations. And of course, then we have to talk about colonialism and all that good stuff. And I think that really decimated, that basically decimated the regions of South Asia. So many inventions, so many things, um, you know, like India basically also like led to the industrial revolution. They were importing all these raw goods, like yep. cotton and stuff and all that good stuff. Yep. So then let's come to today. You know, I really think about that a lot because what we read, so like, you know, you know, the numbers we write, zero, one, two, three, four, those digits, mm -hmm. they're the Hindu Arabic numeral system. Why are they called the Hindu Arabic yeah. numeral system? Because the Arabs learned from the Hindu, well, they called them Hindus, but they were just, like I said, Indians or South Asians. They learned the system from there, translated, literated it and took it to Europe. And so when you really think about it, our world is so freaking connected. We're so connected. And in the world today, we've just forgotten about it. And so I will say, I think most of it is history. I think most of it is colonialism. But I think you see GDP moving back east, which is what's eventually going to happen because of the population size of those two countries. And it's going to be a no-brainer that people will have to know about South Asia again. That's the bad. No, I think you're totally right. I'm, it's not that I think you're totally right. History proves that you're right. And I think it's really sad in some ways because we're 300 years removed or something. And we have these nice little, these cozy definitions, right? We call it India. We call it Pakistan. We call it China. But that's not really the case. I mean, and I'm, I'm trying not to nerd out history, but even if you go to World War I, like Germany wasn't a country. Right. Well, it, it didn't look the way it did now. Austria and Hungary were the same country. It was called Austria-Hungary, you know? So it always cracks me up when people say like, I'm Austrian. It's like, well, what does that even mean? Like that wasn't even a thing, you know? And I know that we're kind of tailing down a rabbit hole, but I think it's really, really important to have that context because it's, it's we, we feel comfortable defining things, right? We feel comfortable saying like, oh, that's American, that's British, that's Indian. But the reality is, is that the whole entire thing is also interconnected, that it's difficult to say, it's difficult to put these cozy little labels on things the way that we want to. And I'll, I'll be so bold to say, I think that is why I'm so excited about what you guys are doing, because it's such a huge part of like the history of who we are as people that come from that region of the world. And, you know, Joe Schmo in the States has just no idea that half of those things are happening, that any of them are happening. <laughs> yeah. Or that, you know, so my dad used to always joke, like we used, you know, the number zero came from South Asia. I'm like, all yeah. right, dad. And I looked it up and he was actually right. <laughs> you know, and, like, and I was like, okay. And, um, you know, and I think that's the beauty of the world is that, you know, another fun fact, the first South Asians came to America, some people say as early as the 1600s and early 1700s, but Asian Americans were the most, sorry, Asians were the most discriminated against immigration policy-wise in the US. So can you imagine a different world? Like if Hollywood wants to do the script, I'll let them take this idea. A different <laughs> world when there were no, if there were no quotas on American immigration, America would look so different. There'd be way more Asian people. There just would be. And so I think that's kind of interesting to me too, like these kind of small, what you think are small decisions in history. In hindsight, there was a 1790 Naturalization Act that barred Asians. Can you imagine that? That like our world is so different because of that. And so we are the fastest growing demographic in America today, by the way. And that's partly 
correlated to the rise of tech. Like everything is, I feel like history repeats constantly. The fact that there are so many independent media companies today is just mimicking what happened when media first started with the written word in the 1800s with people, like small groups of people creating printed pamphlets to kind of disperse. So I think there's something exciting about these repeated patterns. Yeah, I agree totally. And thank you for for allowing me to kind of go off on that because I think that those are really cool conversations that that need more context. All right, uh, let's start wrapping this thing up. You mentioned a little bit ago that you got a podcast coming. You mentioned that your goal was to be the South Asian New York Times, but you have much bigger dreams and 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 much bigger goals. Since you alluded to it, uh, what are you up to? You know, where do you see the juggernaut going? In terms of where we want to go next, we are excited to announce we're probably, we're probably, I want to will this into being, we are launching three podcasts next year. It's happening. Right. It's finally time. Um, we're not going to announce what they are yet, but I'm, I'm working with a very exciting individual and partnering with her on it. So I'm really excited about that. What's also really exciting is that we're growing the team. We're going to add probably anywhere from three to four people in the next quarter. So this quarter. And so I'm actively hiring. So if you know of any great engineers, if you know of any great editors or writers, send them our way. We're, we're really excited to kind of grow a little bit. And I think the other thing that's on my mind, frankly, as a leader is how do I get to this next stage where we have been quite small of a team for a really long time. And now me as a leader, I'm learning how to, how to, frankly, you know, that phrase, uh, it's a great essay that I keep talking about, let go of the Legos. Like, how do you let go of your Legos? and allow other people to thrive and, you know, let go of some of the things you were working on so you can work on those bigger things. And I think that's what's been on my mind a lot because why I say that we're much bigger than even just the New York Times, the Browner New York Times, is that most New York Times readers aren't being like, I'm gonna go meet up with New York Times readers. I don't think most people ever say that. But I want people at the Juggernaut to be like, I wanna go meet up with other Juggernaut subscribers because I want to really truly build a community for our group of people. And for so long, I think our generation specifically hasn't felt that form of community. Mm. Like my parents' generation, their community is mostly their relatives who happen to immigrate with them. Our generation, I didn't have that many South Asian friends for a really long time until I actually lived in Bombay for a year and did some other stuff. And I met a lot of amazing people, but like I didn't have that many growing up. And so how do we kind of create this network where people are giving back and giving to each other and supporting each other because they're part of this community and they're getting deeper into things. And, you know, we have these questions as a group of people, right? Like I often think about with my partner who happens to be South Asian American, but I, we've often wondered like, what languages are we going to teach our kids? What food are we going to maintain? And that's like very typical immigrant questions, but it's something that we all kind of grapple with. And so I think that's really what's next for the juggernaut. The first being we're going to expand into other things behind the written word. Second, we're hiring up. And third, I'm learning how to be a better leader. And fourth, like we really want to build some community here. I think everybody wants to have an online community, but I think a lot of people force it because we forget that what we're doing, the, the internet is nothing but a communication method. It's, it's, at its core, like that's all it is. And so in order to have a community, you have to have a tribe of people that like are communal in the first place. And obviously what you're doing um, with family bonds and, and history uh, will just by the byproduct of it being the way it is, share that sense of community. So I, I think you can totally add 
maybe even separate subscription models or maybe even just like a free model that's part of the, the subscription that they have. I think there's a lot of cool possibilities there. And so, so good luck. I'm sure you're going to kill it. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. Really appreciate talking to you about all of these things. Yeah, me too. That was a great conversation. Okay, so thejuggernaut.com. Um, I'll link your Twitter. It's not just your name. So I'll put your Twitter in the show notes. Um, and then your, the Juggernaut has a Twitter, right? Yeah, so the Juggernaut Twitter is be the Juggernaut. And we also have an Instagram that we're really proud of, which is just underscore the Juggernaut. Yeah, it's fine. It'll all be linked in the show notes of the podcast itself and also of the, uh, of the blog post on, on timstods.com. Great. Snigda, thank you so much for your time. You're a joy to talk to. Uh, best of luck to you and everything. And I hope we can keep in touch. Yes, same. Stay well. See ya. Hey guys, it's me. It's Tim. One last time before we wrap up, just wanted to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. Please leave me an honest rating. Please follow me on Spotify. It's the best thing you can do to support the show. If you want to find out more, go to timstods.com. Feel free to fill out the contact form to reach out to me personally. I always respond. I appreciate you guys so much. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one.